As I come up to the, the Christmas table, our Advent table with our Advent wreath, I also wanted to let you know here as we start, um, a, a dear friend, a dear member of our church family, um, Johnny Sawada, passed away earlier this week. Um, Johnny Sawada is an elder in our church, just an amazing, amazing man of God. Um, we want to be in prayer for his wife, Ruth, for his children, David and Rachel and Jonathan, and um, just ask you to join in prayer for them. He'd been battling cancer for several months. Um, but like, well, I want, well, I wanted to even tell you about that in this moment, um, even rather than any other moment that I would, is because we're about to think about and talk about hope. And Johnny understood and understands where his hope is found. His hope is found in Jesus. And Johnny is in glory right now with Jesus. And that's really hard for us. It's really hard for his family. But it's really amazing, really amazing for him. His hope was strong, and his hope was in Christ. And so I want us to even consider that and remember that as we pray for his family. Um, so can we just pray even now for, for them specifically, and then we'll focus in here on the Advent wreath. Heavenly Father, we come before you and say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the beautiful, generous, loving, and kind, and wise life of Johnny Sawada. And we pray, Lord Jesus, for his family. We pray for your peace, your comfort, your love upon them and upon all of us, Lord, that uh, just knew and loved him, God. So we look to you for hope, for ultimate hope, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are here at uh, this season of Advent. And as Aaron mentioned earlier, Advent means arrival. The arrival of something that has been waited for. Something that you've been waiting and longing for. The Advent is that arrival. And so this period that we call Advent that leads to Christmas is that time of waiting, that time of hoping, that time of longing for the coming of Jesus, just like the people of Israel did in, in the Old Testament time as they waited for the Messiah. Now, <clears throat> this Advent wreath that we have, it has some, and the candles all have some significance that I just want to remind you of now. The fact that the Advent wreath is a circle, it reminds us of God himself, of his eternity, of his endless mercy, which has no beginning and no end. Even the color, the greenery of that wreath speaks of the hope that we have in God for newness of life, of eternal life in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The, the candles, just the fact that there's candles themselves, it symbolizes the light of the world, the light of God coming to this world, that Jesus is the light of the world. And then what these four outer candles represent are the four centuries or the 400 years of waiting and longing between the end of the Old Testament, the end of the book of Malachi, leading up to the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels. And that 400 years of the people of Israel there waiting in silence and longing for the coming of the Messiah. And each of these individual candles has their own meaning of hope and peace and joy and love. And today we focus in on hope. 
But before we light the candle of hope, we also wait longingly for the, to light this center candle, which is the Christ candle that we will light on Christmas Eve. So now we light the candle that represents our hope, our hope in the coming of Emmanuel, of God with us. So let's pray again as we then will sing one more song before I'll come and share the word of God with you today. Lord, we, we hope, we long for you. We wait expectantly for your coming again, God. We're so, we so celebrate that you have come and we look for your second coming. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Yeah. 
Amen. Beautiful song, beautiful, beautiful time of worship, of our coming, and who has already come, King, God with us, Emmanuel. So good morning, Calvary Church. It is so good to be with you all. Uh, love this time of year. I'm like kind of mad that I'm starting to feel sick because I'm just like, no, I want to celebrate. I want to go and just have a great time celebrating this beautiful Christmas season with all of you. And I will. I'm determined. Uh, but um, we are calling this Christmas uh, series, this Advent series, the Christmas Table. The Christmas table as we come along and we come and arrive to our Christmas table that we have here, even at this Advent table uh, before you. And I want you, as we kind of start to get into this, and I'll sort of explain why we're calling it this as, as we go here. But, uh, you know, think about you when you set your Christmas table, however that looks, and it has all sorts of different ways that could look, or what your dream table would be, or what Thanksgiving was recently like, or if you're going to have somebody like super exciting or important or something, that's like people that you really love coming over to your house, and how would you set your table? How would you prepare for that? And is it the full Norman Rockwell, just that classic kind of old Americana version of that setting of the table? Or, you know, maybe it's like my Thanksgiving tradition where we just go to Joshua Tree and hang out in a campsite. You know, like it can have all sorts of ways that it looks. It doesn't have to just look like this. But we, we think about the table and the coming to sit at the table and we, we really care about what that's gonna look like as we invite people to have a seat at our table. And even, I don't know if you know, but even within the, the temple of God, within, or the tabernacle, when the people were of Israel were traveling around, they're in there as they approach the Holy of Holies within the house of God was a table with the elements set in a very precise and specific way as they prepared for worship, as they prepared for sacrifice. So it really mattered. And I, I love gathering at a table. I love going and doing activities or going to the movies or doing stuff, but just what I love most, even a date night with my wife or something, I love most just going out to eat and sitting at a table and having great food and great conversation. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And to be able to have that time together, gathering with a group of friends and just sitting around that table and lingering and, and just being together. It's a beautiful, beautiful time. Um, and what I want to have you understand is that the Christmas table is about us having hope to sit at the table. Hope to sit at the table of God. Because the incarnation is an invitation for you to sit at God's table. The incarnation, what that means, the incarnation is that God himself God, very God, came to earth and lived as one of us, put on human flesh himself, felt pain, felt emotion, had to be tired, had to understand what it feels like to live this life that we live. The God of the universe did that, came down from heaven to live as one of us. That is the incarnation. And the incarnation is an invitation, as I've said. He is inviting you then to come and to be at his table. But what's so cool is that God himself, he's, he's the host. 
He's the cook. He's the messenger. He's the landowner. He's the homeowner. He's the king of all kings. And yet he didn't just send out an Evite. He came himself in bodily form and came to us and came and experienced what it was to be one of us and in that invited us to have a seat as part of his family at his table. And he did that to bring us hope. And so as I'll talk about this a little bit, just to consider the hope that we have as we have a seat at the table of God. Uh, First thing I want you to consider is that the guests of what I would call the first Christmas table, this nativity scene, the, the, the moment that Jesus was born, the guests that were called to arrive were completely unexpected. Okay, the first guests that we have arrive, we meet in Luke 2, these shepherds. I'll read just a short portion of Luke 2, verse 8. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem. That these shepherds, these these people that were the lowest, some of the lowest of, of the society in that first century Jewish culture, that these people who are just kind of just thought of it just like, ah, whatever, you know, these people are, are young, they're poor, they're not important people. But they were the ones that were first invited to come and be part of, I guess what I'd call Jesus's sort of like first birthday, but it's like zero birthday, right? Whatever you call that, actual birthday. So it's Jesus's birthday, they got to come and be part of that. They were invited to that first Christmas table. And that's so interesting that he invites them. And then, and then the others who are invited, uh, they come a little while later, but these wise men, these magi, these travelers from the east. And we look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, it starts with this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so these people from these eastern lands that are not Jewish people, that are likely some sort of pagans, that are some sort of, I don't know what their whole deal was with like astrologers or people that were seeking out something though. What's so interesting about them, they were unexpected because they were not part of this Jewish people, but they're invited to come to see this baby Jesus. Yet they are so like, they are these people that are searching. They're searching for truth. They're searching for hope. They're longing for something. They're waiting for something. They, they are desiring something. Maybe they're looking for it in all sorts of wrong directions. But they're the ones that are invited to come and to be again part of this first Christmas table. And so these shepherds and these wise men are part of this hope, this longing to have a seat at the table. And they come not with a critical eye, but with an expectant eye. 
They come expecting, they come hoping and longing for more. And what I want you to understand in all of this is that you are invited. You are invited to a life of hope at the Christmas table of God, to come to meet with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to be invited to be part of his family. Because that's what God does. When he invites us in, he invites us to be part of his actual family. And so I want to tell you this, this story. Um, it's like probably one of the, the least uh, expected Christmas stories that you might have. But it's in 2 Samuel 9, all the way back in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 9. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But what we have going on in this story is you have, uh, just to kind of set up some stuff, you've got King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. And uh, King Saul then, he starts, to, he starts to kind of go off, okay? He's going off base, he's, he's struggling, he's, um, he's not uh, following all the ways of God, and there is a need for a new king. And so God, through his prophet Samuel, anoints David to be the next king king of Israel. Now, it's a different whole line. It, it's not who like a normal like uh, royal lineage should pass from Saul to David. It's a totally different family. And so Saul is trying to kill David. Saul is like hunting after David. David has opportunities even to take out Saul, but he says, no, 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 I won't. I won't kill him because he is the Lord's anointed king over Israel. I won't harm him. And he's just waiting for it to be his turn, but Saul's trying to kill him. So it's kind of a rough relationship. Now, David is friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So they're great friends. Uh, and then you have... So it's this kind of like complicated relationship here where your buddy's dad wants to kill you. Now you're supposed to be the next king and all this is happening. And eventually then both Saul and Jonathan are killed and David does become king. Now, normally what happens in a story like this is then if, the, if this royal um, line is going to a whole different family, they're going to take out all of that other family. They're going to kill all them. They're going to take all their stuff. They don't want them coming after them. And that's sort of where we arrive here in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. Actually, I'll go back a little bit. It says, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lo-Debar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. Can you say that with me? Mephibosheth. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good name. I think that should be like Gen Zers. Like think this could be a good name for your future kids. Yeah, Mephibosheth, let's bring it back. I like it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I could just put a dare out to you millennials to just go for it. I don't know. But I think Gen Z might have the courage. But we'll see. Mephibosheth. All right. So Mephibosheth, this guy who is, you know, the grandson of the, the no longer king who is dead. And now you've got 
and he's also crippled. So he's very looked down upon in this society. And he is crippled in both feet. And he's this son of a sort of deposed dead king. And now he's just thinking he's going to get killed. That's what, that's what he's thinking is what's going to happen to him. Now, it says, so David sent for Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. You see, he's like, don't be afraid. He's expecting some sort of punishment or some sort of consequence. But no, David says, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And then check this. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant? Who am I, he says, that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Like, listen to how he describes himself. How could you show kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Now, verse 11, Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly, regularly at the king's table. In the scriptures, when you see repetition, you should notice that it, there's repetition for a reason. And it says about four times that Mephibosheth ate at the king's table, like one of the king's own sons. And if you haven't started picking up on this already, what we see in this story is the heart of God for you. This is the heart of God for you. You are a dead dog deserving of death. That is what we in our sin deserve. But what God gives us out of his loving kindness, his grace upon grace upon grace, his mercy is completely undeserved and unexpected mercy. He says, come, sit at my table, eat here with me every single day. You are one of my own children. God adopts us into his family says, we were destined for death. I've adopted you now into my family. And now you are my children. And eat with me at my table, the Christmas table, the king's table, every single day. That's the heart of God for you. That's the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas that leads to Good Friday, that leads to Easter. And because of all of that, we have the right to sit at God's table. Isn't that beautiful? Just a beautiful foreshadowing through the story of David and Mephibosheth, the story of God and his children, you and I. And so God has made you his sons and daughters. 
So I want you to have that expectation, that hope, that you have hope because you have a seat at the table of God. You have a seat at the great banqueting feast of God for eternity in this new heaven and new earth, that you have an invitation to that. Because of the incarnation, you now have an invitation to sit at God's table for eternity. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of the good news of the gospel. And I'm excited for you to sit at God's table forever. I love uh, Romans 15, 13 that you'll see here on the screen that says, I pray that God, the source of hope, God is the source of hope. We, we, we have this hope in God and in God alone. And I pray that God will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have this hope. And even, even our hope, as we talk about all things are through God's power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, even our hope is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a beautiful and wondrous hope because of Christmas. And then, so we recognize you are invited to this life. You are invited to the table, but you also have a role to invite others to sit at God's table. And we can't forget this part of it. This part is so important. As you are called and invited to the party, don't be someone that's just like, oh, I've got an invitation. Cool, I'm in. No, we have an invitation so that we can also be inviting others, that we are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Like John the Baptist, he prepared the way. As he came, he prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. He set the table, so to speak. We have that same sort of role. We set the table for people. We prepare the way for people to come and to, have, uh, to be able to sit at a meal, an eternal meal, an eternal feast and banquet with the God of the universe. We have a role in this invitation. Who will you invite? And so I wanna show you another interesting story in, in the scriptures. It's in Luke 7. And it's a story of a great feast a great banquet that we will have one day. Uh, it's in Luke 14, actually. Uh, Luke 14. And the beginning of this, it starts, it says, one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner, this is verse one, in the home of a leader of the Pharisees. And the people were watching him closely. So check the, check the like, surroundings and the context here, right? Jesus is going into a meal, sitting at a table, having a meal with a religious leader and these other Pharisees. So it's like a leader of the Pharisees and these other Pharisees. And he's sitting at this meal with them. Then uh, we kind of go down to verse 7. Uh, when Jesus noticed that all who'd come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. And he's basically telling them, like, don't, don't try and get the good spot. Just take the lowly spot, like be more humble in all of this. But that's not the part that I'm trying to focus on here. I want to take it down to this next part, verse 12, where he says, Then he turns to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, 
What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. This sentence is one of the craziest sentences that you could ever say. This guy is sitting literally at a, at a table with Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's sitting at a table with Jesus saying, what a blessing it will be one day to sit at a banquet in the kingdom of God. He is in the kingdom of God right then and there because the king of all kings is right in front of him. And he's like, oh, that'll be so nice one day. And it's hard because he's sort of right. Yes, it will be wonderful one day when we will be in glory and a new heaven and a new earth and all, all, every tear is gone. There will be no more pain, no more crying. It will be wondrous. But he's right here in front of Jesus and he's just missing it. He's missing it so much. And he's thinking of himself. Jesus then, it says in verse 16, replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast, sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five pairs of oxen. I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So this guy's like saying, hey, it's going to be so cool to like sit with the king one day. And then Jesus is like, tell, starts telling this story about people that were invited and were like, nah, I'm, I'm too busy to come to your party. And then uh, verse 21, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and, in, and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. There are many places to identify with in this story you should probably try to identify not with just one of them. You should probably kind of take a moment to identify with yourself as the Pharisee, as the religious leader that sort of sees it wrong and is just not recognizing that Jesus is here with us in the here and now. He was right there with them. The kingdom of God is both come and coming, right? We're here, it's here now, and it's also going to be more fully realized in the future. But we should recognize where we sort of, you know, I don't know, however we sort of just put off the, the invitation of God to us. We should also recognize that maybe we are the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and how beautiful it is that God has invited us to be someone that can sit at his beautiful banqueting table with him, even though that is who we are as a dead dog. And then we should also recognize that we need to be the messengers. We need to be the inviters. We need to be the people going out into every, every lane, every street, every um, city, every country in the entire world, inviting people to be part of this great feast that we are having and will have fully one day with God. And so I ask you here, who will you invite 
to the table of God, and sort of as part of that then, who will you invite to your table? Because part of inviting people to the beautiful feast of God is just to say, hey, would you want to come and just be part of my table at my house with my family, to be part of what we are doing, to be, to be a host, to be gracious and kind. You see this beautiful kindness, this beautiful generosity of life that God shows that we are called to also then show to others. That Jesus comes to earth as Emmanuel, God with us, to draw people, to draw people to himself. We simply set the table. We simply invite and we wait and we long and we hope for then the Holy Spirit to do that work in them. Now, part of how you can be inviting is through even inviting people, I think, to our Christmas Eve candlelight services. It's such a, a good chance for you to invite someone to come in and to hear the gospel, to hear the good news in a pretty like just a fun and inviting time to celebrate Christmas. And then they are also able to hear the good news of the gospel. So I just encourage you as you do that. And sort of like our through line even throughout this whole series is this beautiful sense that we are invited. We are invited into God's family. We are invited to have a seat at this table. But also through that invitation, we are to send out invitations and be invitational to others. And maybe that even means to be incarnational, to be present in their lives, in everyday life with people more and more, to show the light of Jesus to people in the everyday sort of normal parts of life of how we trust in him, how we look to him and express his great kindness. And so today we will have a chance to respond by approaching a different table. We approach the Last Supper table, the table of the Eucharist, the table of communion. Because it's at this table that it represents what happens after Christmas. There's this beautiful celebration of Christmas, of, of the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. But we know then he lived that perfect life that none of us could live and then willingly went to the cross. And it was there on the cross where he died upon that cross that he paid the price that we deserve to pay. He gave his body for us. He shed his blood for us. And then he rose again in victory and power on the third day. And so that, as we come, as we take communion today, that is what we are remembering. We remember and we give thanks for the fact that Jesus gave his body for us. As we eat the bread, we remember his body given for us. As we drink from the cup, we remember his blood shed for us. And so I'm gonna pray for us here in a moment. We're just gonna have some time of, uh, just kind of gentle instrumental music and a time for you to reflect, a time for you to pray, a time for you to talk to the Lord, for you to confess any sin that you might have in your life that you want to just um, be able to give over to him and surrender to him and just anew and afresh place your hope, place your trust, your faith in him, that you believe that he died upon the cross and rose again and you give him thanks for it. And so come at some point in this next few minutes and come take the elements. There's tables all around the room and come grab the bread and the cup and then just take it back to your seat with you. And then I'll come up in a few minutes and I will lead all of us in taking it together. Okay? So let me pray for us and you'll have some time for reflection and prayer.
Lord, thank you for just your incredible kindness, God, your incredible generosity, your overflowing, overflowing grace. Thank you for this mercy that you've given us, that you would invite us to sit at the king's table and eat with you, Lord, every day. Thank you for the story of Christmas. Thank you that you have come and you have, like, you know what it's like to be us. God, thank you for that. Thank you that we can relate to you in that way. And Lord, I pray that we would then now just give you thanks and remember and not take for granted what you ultimately came to do, to die upon the cross, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name.